Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. This edition of the Kellen and Alex Show was recorded in June of 2020 with special guest Nicholas Larkins. We get into all sorts of different topics. He's a super smart guy. We get into, uh, especially get into liberalism and where exactly does it fail and where does it succeed? I challenge him on it and ask him, how do you open someone up to the possibility of grace, of needing grace in your life more than just your human effort? So we get into that and much more in this edition of the Kellen and Alex Show. We have seen from Harvard, they just recently came out saying all of their classes are completely online for this fall semester and then the spring semester, which is quite a big decision. No, I mean, yeah, it is. It's, well, you know, especially now since they canceled the basketball season, you know, those Ivy League schools like, you know, Villanova, Duke. All those main schools, I think, you know, North Carolina, I think they all shut down their basketball season. Of course, you know, that's their sport. Um, I called my boss today at Franciscan and asked him, hey, is you think the basketball season for us is going to be canceled? And he says right now it's a 50-50. And if that's canceled, I'm my main job is pretty much gone over there. Um, Are you going to be doing announcing? <clears throat> yeah, I'll be doing the, you know, sports broadcasting over there. And also doing game day technology and things like that. Plus singing the national anthem before the game. You shouldn't miss that. You shouldn't With miss the pink suit. Everyone in chat, if you haven't seen Kellen in the pink suit, that thing is perfect. It's too good. I'm going to go get a purple one. Like at the end. <laughs> I'm going to go to men's warehouse and get a purple one. At so the your end pink of one ripped. <laughs> did rip. It did Down rip. here by my legs, dude. dude. Okay, so there's two places that it ripped. I'm only going to name one of them. <laughs> um, you just one, did one other place that, that that ripped was down near my uh my shoes i got i got stuck on like like a stick or something like a stick literally ripped it on the bottom like ripped it like near my sock and i was like this just looks terrible it got it ripped in another place i'm not gonna say but uh you know it was actually very quite embarrassing but you know i i've i figured it out it seriously so seemed like every national anthem, you were the one who was singing it <laughs> at Franciscan. Like, it well, didn't yeah, matter any game. Dude, because nobody wanted, nobody wanted to sing it. I was like, is there not a student here at Franciscan that doesn't want to sing in front of the school? I mean, There's no on, Patriots, guys. man. There's no, no Patriots. Patriots. Where, where's the patriotism, man? Fourth of July. Speaking of Fourth of July, oh, Colin Kaepernick calling it a day of white supremacy. Is that what he called it? Well, wow. Called it a day of white supremacy. Tell me something, Nick. Tell me, you know, as a patriot, the patriot that you are, one of the smartest guys at Franciscan for sure. We all know that. Um, I'm just saying, look, how can the 4th of July have anything to do with white supremacy or independence? Um, well, to answer your question candidly, at least initially, it can have everything to do with it if you choose to see it that way. Um, there really is very little objectively about the 4th of July, if you will, which we'll probably call Independence Day as you did, which couldn't be twisted to fit some sort of preconceived worldview that you wanted, if you had that mind to. Um, frankly, Kellen, it seems to me as though people are bent on doing something as simple as maybe what you might call an accidental quality of the time of Independence Day. So the fact that the majority of people in the United States government at the time of Independence um, or the Declaration of Independence, were white, a means that there's somehow uh, supremacy associated with the white race at that particular time, which is, which is sort of accidental, if you will. It has very little to do with the, the quality of their skin, uh, that particular race of people, and everything to do with the generation of ideas, and the develop, 
development of all kinds of various philosophical and political thought that culminates in the independence, but has almost nothing to do with white supremacy in the technical sense, but everything to do with the culmination of Western civilization. And if you mean the Western civilization as white supremacy, well, then yeah, it's white supremacy. But all that means is the culmination of Western civilization. So it, you have to parse terms if you're going to talk on white supremacy in a particular way, if that makes sense. But it seems like they identify that, right? It's white supremacy, and it, and then it's got it's a vague term, but it's kind of generally like the system that benefits white people is kind of the the general, you know, why the whole system's corrupt. It's <clears throat> systemically racist because it's made by white people, therefore it must be, you know, beneficial to white people. Right, but they don't even bother to define their terms because white people is so ambiguously broad as to be laughable. What, what qualifies as white or non-white, at least as far as that's concerned? Merely someone who benefits? Because there are plenty of not-white people who don't benefit. Are they excluded from it? Thereof? The, the difficulty with discussing white supremacy, at least as far as you're dialoguing with someone who's liberally minded, is that their terms are defined such that they only fit their own intentions. You actually can't have a conversation with them. It would require going back to the terms, and you can't have a conversation about terms because their terms are everything. That's why it's identity politics. You can't have a conversation outside of them. Right, because you wouldn't understand unless you were part of my group to begin with. So discussion and debate really isn't necessary at all. In fact, you don't want it. The groundwork of liberalism necessitates an exaltation of the individual. And when the individual is everything, dialogue is impossible because your will triumphs dialogue. Reason, truth, objective reality, whatever you want it to be, as long as the individual will has a declaration of some kind, none of that matters. So dialogue is impossible. It's the triumph of relativism. So we got a question. This is from David Willey, but not in the chat, but in the proletariat. And he said, Nick, by the way, what's your opinion on usury and capitalism? Which is completely different from what we were talking about. But that's well, something that it is. It's somewhat related. The systemic. You know, we have liberalism has put systemic capitalism upon us. <laughs> Anyways, your opinions on uh, on usury. And if you guys don't know, usury is charging interest on loans which basically our whole economic system is totally predicated on it, at least today. Usury is bad. How is it bad? How is it bad? How is, like, if I loan somebody money, okay, well, let's take, you know, the current American system of um, money creation and debt creation, where banks and uh, our system set up in such a way that the Federal Reserve uh, creates money that the federal government is indebted to the central bank at interest to pay it back, and they can print the money and then use it now, and the taxpayer will have to deal with the inflation later on. Likewise, private banks um, are able to create money by uh, creating debt. So you you can uh, create debt that will be owed in the future, but you're basically creating money because debt is used as money in a way. It's it's really a complex system, but we use debt to push off payment and create economic stimulus now. Right? And ultimately like it's it's going to be a problem, but it's always a future problem. So right. it seems to Until work it fair enough. It seems to work it seems not fair enough. It seems to work you know better than if we had no system of interest cuz then you could get into situations where like an economic depression is in reality an economic depression. Um, so like in this current crisis, the Federal Reserve has just printed ridiculous amounts of money, has given 
um, huge amounts of loans at basically zero interest, which is basically free money just to pay me at a future date, uh, to pay me at a future date to all these huge corporations and, uh, you know, trillions of dollars of stimulus. And that has staved off a economic depression in a lot of ways from coronavirus. I mean, we're going to have to deal with it later on, but it was a, we were able to stave it off. So I, I get the whole usury thing, but then the difficulty is like, okay, we've dug ourselves so deep in this hole and this is what we do. Um, do we just call it all evil or do we try and replace it with something? Like what practically no, no, I, would we try and change about that system? I, it, there's a lot to it and it's deep. And I think that you would agree with me that this particular topic is not one that you can address with either like a trite witticism of some kind, nor is it something that you could even succinctly articulate a comprehensive view on. It requires a conversation of some kind, even to be clear about what you're talking about. Um, usury is in many ways, in my mind, it could be likened to um, actually divorce and remarriage, right? So should divorce and remarriage be allowed? Absolutely not. Is it contravening the very nature of society? Absolutely. Is it antithetical to the foundation of all that we uphold and believe in Western civilization and the Catholic Church? Absolutely. Should we ban it tomorrow? Absolutely not. Um, it would be counterintuitive to say, even if we could, place a ban on divorce tomorrow. You're married, you're not allowed to get divorced, period, and put all the legal restrictions in place that come with that. Um, as much as that might be ideal in a perfect society, it's not one that we could implement now. And it's not only the fact that we couldn't do it, it's that we morally ought not to do it because of the negative repercussions that would come about. It's a complicated thought. How do you actually return to a civilization that has a healthy, legal, cultural, societal, and familial respect for the marital bond? In a similar way, usury is something which obviously ought not have a place in society, as at least defined in scripture. But there are multiple ways of understanding money lending, not all of which are usury. To your question, Alex, I agree that as an American society, anyhow, but I believe the rest of the West, but I won't discuss them for now. We're so deeply entrenched in this particular way of life, this particular way of viewing finances and money and engaging in societal contracts and that sort of thing, that we couldn't end it tomorrow and replace it with something else and things would go on okay. It's embedded into the very fabric of social contract, which is, of course, what was propounded before the founders and inspired a lot of the kind of enlightenment deistic type thought, which was really the foundation in a lot of ways of the virtue theory of men like Ben Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, and that kind of thing. Um, and, and so we're, it's kind of here to stay, if you will, at least as far as America is concerned. Um, maybe we can start there. What do you think about that? Could you try and turn your phone sideways and see if the camera angle will go full? See if that'll do that. Yeah, much better. All right, sick. How's that work? Now you look bigger. Cool. Amazing. We just created... I was going to make a Federal Reserve joke, but then I, I lost it. Well, uh, good try. Anyways, Federal Reserve, you guys should look that, that stuff up. It's, it's pretty whack. But yeah, no, I, I totally agree. <laughs> By the way, Twitch readers, we are taking chat. We, we are watching uh, for questions. We're talking capitalism and usury. Um, okay, so Nick sent me an article from our professor, Dr. Jones, uh, with regards to abortion that was very interesting, in which he uh, abortion was said by Dr. Jones to be the sacrament of liberalism uh, in a way. Nick's, Nick's gone. The sacrament Sac of liberalism. Sacrament yeah, of liberalism. That we've gotten to at this point um, that one of the things now going on with you, what you were talking about, marriage and the family, um, abortion props up the system of um, 
<laughs> Nick's there moving to the top. There he is. So tying. I'm actually I'm I'm blanking on the 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 abortion and liberalism connection again. Uh, he he's gone again. But there there he so is. His back. connection. No, I'm still here, man. Okay, cool. You're just crazy. I had to find a charger. Again, I'm never prepared when you guys call. <laughs> Thank you for your tolerance. So if I can maybe jump in and help you out there, yeah, Alex. Yeah, go, go for it. What they were describing there is they, they went through a lot of the history of child sacrifice in pagan religions and as detailed in scripture for the most part. And what they're attempting to do is not strictly based upon that argument, but articulated well by those examples is to demonstrate that the particular act of killing one's child is the culmination of all the other philosophical tenets of liberalism, primarily the subservience of the individual to the state, if you will, um, whether that be a man-made god of some kind, like the old god Maal, or um, the man-made god of the Leviathan that Hobbes talks about. And that abortion is the consummate example of liberalism because the very fabric of human society and the only act in which human beings participate in the act of divine creation is rendered null and void by any decision of the state, such that even for a parent to say, I love you, is actually equal to say that to the degree that I didn't want to kill you, I love you. And so it is, it's, it's the exaltation of the state over all else, um, which is kind of a strange way to think about abortion. And they, they acknowledge the nuance that uh, a pagan killing his child in some sort of weird sacrifice, uh, sacrificial ritual is much different from a woman in a crisis pregnancy just seeking help. There's differences and there's nuances, and they acknowledge that. But they were discussing the nature of abortion itself, and that's what they were getting at. Right. That the state allows um, that the state allows you to kill your child basically means you're you're assenting to the notion that, um, yeah, you as an individual in the state are corroborate corroborating in your power and your own individual fulfillment and desire in the state's individual uh, or the state's desire to be supreme, and so you're working within that framework and. That doesn't take into consideration the supremacy of the family as being primary. Right. And you could even you could even have questions about the supremacy of the family, which is a weird way to put it. But I think I get what you're saying. Maybe we could articulate it more traditionally yeah. as the first society or the foundational building blocks, what Aristotle used. Um, but, but even more than that, I think it has a lot to do with human life in general, which is to say that the ability to, in quite literally the technical sense of the word, arbitrarily decide who lives and who dies by virtue of a mandate of the state is to make a God out of the state, which is exactly the end of liberalism. And so, so Nick, are if you, you will, and if it's a sick, it's a sick thought, but abortion is the Eucharist of liberalism. It's, it's the, it's the consummate sacrament upon the altar of individual. Big claims, Mr. So, Larkins. That, that's very interesting. And Nick, I wanted to ask, you know, is abortion, is abortion something that, you know, the government allows or the government enforces? That's a good question. Um, do you mean what is it currently doing or what do what does liberalism want the government to do? Well, what I mean, what does liberalism want the government to do? And should we even define it as allows? Because it seems like, you know, the United States each year murders hundreds of thousands of innocent babies due mm -hmm. to abortion. That doesn't seem to me like the government is allowing it. It seems like the government is pushing forth an agenda on the people, like enforcing it on the people, um, almost in a totalitarian kind of style. That entirely, entirely. It's it's just like it doesn't. It's not like it even gives people a chance. I mean, if you if you know 
interview, there's been so many women that have been interviewed after they've, you know, done an abortion and they've just expressed their feelings of trauma and of just complete sadness. And, you know, why would a government, aka the US government, allow, or we could say, you know, enforce such a thing on a person if really they don't understand, you know, how it affects the person? Well, so I'll tell you exactly why, Kellen, because from the view of liberalism, the liberal view of the state, if you will, and I use the word state meaning more than the American state, but we can discuss the particular American state. The liberal view of the state is that it is all-encompassing. It is the end-all, be-all, the alpha and omega. There's nothing transcendent about liberalism. It denies eternity. All that is and all that one moves towards is the state. It's the culmination of everything, the agglomerate of some kind. So the individual, individual trauma, individual pain, individual difficulty doesn't matter. The complete and unrestricted exercise of the will of the state is what matters. And what better way to do that, if you will, than when the individual doesn't want it. So the idea, this is, this is Hobbes' whole notion of, of cooperation, is that to the degree that everyone ascends to the state, there's peace. But the minute you disagree with the state, suddenly you're back in the, the, the condition of war. And the state has to brutally, if necessary, coerce you back into the state of peace by making you agree with it. So you're totally right to use the word totalitarian, but totally wrong to assume that a liberal state would care anything for the individual. The liberal state cares only for itself as an agglomeration of the individuals. But unlike, say, the agglomeration of individuals in um, the body of Christ, where individuality is maintained and perfected, in liberalism, it's, it's completely abolished, obliterated. The individual gets absorbed, kind of in an Eastern Buddhist sense, but much more dark, I suppose, into the state itself. So there's no concern for the individual. Not in that sense, anyway. So could you say you're given, you accept the freedoms you get from, let's say, the social contract of assenting to the state, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. the state in determining what are your freedoms is the ultimate sovereign in this, right? And so if your freedoms also include the ability to kill your children, then the state is basically saying that's something licit and you should do that in some sense. Right. And and that, that's, I think what Kellen's point is here is um, not that the U S government is telling people to get abortions, but that, well, I mean, in in some way by saying we're going to provide for it and subsidize it and whatever else they are saying that literally. Yeah. 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 For purposes of, population control. Um, we've also known like, and also um, for economic su- success, right? Because having a a lesser birth rate and then having women more in the work workplace that could produce more economic output, uh, yep, which is the yep. ultimate goal, you know, for uh, this, this sovereign is to continue its um, military economic might, et cetera. Right. Also, the so, end of modern feminism, which is an interesting connection. But continue. Yeah. So let's move to Jones's, let's say, more conclusion part of this, and um, yeah, for, yeah. for our viewers in, in chat uh, as well. Uh, I've had this, you know, last time we went f- for the March for Life, and we were all there uh, in DC in January. I always had this this feeling that there's a lot of positive sentiment around March for Life, pro life stuff, but there's kind of an almost a uh, an eerie agreement that. It's really not going to be overturned, and we just have to do our best to limit the damage. That's at least that's the sentiment that I got. That's the you know kind of air 
that I got doing the march is you have the people who are doom and gloom, whatever, and then you have the other people who are just like, well, Trump's here and he's going to do something. But Jones was pointing out, like, yeah, yeah, even for the conservatives, it's Jones puts it in these very extreme language, but that's that's okay. In terms of he calls it an apocalypse. He says, if we actually truly got rid of abortion, it would be an, an apocalypse for the way that we understand the United States of America. Now, I, yeah. don't, I don't know if it'd completely be to that, that extreme, but I, I think that does point to, um, yeah, it's, it would be, it would be completely different, um, way of conceiving our relationship to, to the state and the state's relationship to uh, but, the but, but that's I think that's precisely why apocalyptic is maybe the right word. Um, and also to the credit, uh, the, the the article was written both by Dr. Jones and uh, Mark Barnes as well, so the co-authored work there. Um, the, if you think of apocalypse, not in like the the movies or the zombies or 2012 or that kind of thing, but as as the actual word implies, apocalypto, an ending, um, but a kind of a cataclysmic ending in that there's no turning back, if you will, then. The end of abortion, or or if we were to make abortion illegal and eradicate it from this country, would be the apocalypse of liberalism, if you will. Because here comes the consummate sacrament of liberalism, which has been mounting for hundreds of years, if you will, through the progression of social contract theory, natural law, natural rights in the um, Hobbesian and Lockean sense of the term. Then you get deistic and then secular in the Protestant United States, which eventually turns into the materialistic secular world that we see now, all the way up to the abortificant, liberal, postmodern, adjective after adjective, United States we see today, to suddenly go back on that and to eradicate from it one of its most central pillars would be an apocalypse, I believe, understood that way. At least for liberal America, right? Catholic America would be rejoicing, but liberal America, as far as liberal America is concerned, could not continue to function the same. Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's so true because it was such a massive Supreme Court decision. And, you know, before that, it was everybody, you know, looked down upon it. I mean, obviously, it was like <clears throat> something that you didn't do. You know, Trump really said that he's trying hard to abolish, you know, Roe v. Wade. And, I mean, it's obviously something that should be done and something that we should want. But it's hard. It's very hard to do. I mean, when you have all over the nation, you know, Planned Parenthood, you know, just these, this company that commits, you know, and supports for all these abortions. It's hard. Well, It'll be hard to like, you know, like to defund and to, and to really get that message across that this is not something that we want. I, I agree with you, Kellen, that the cultural change will be really difficult, but I'm also inclined to agree with the opening paragraph of the article authored by Jones and Barnes, which essentially says that, listen, we've had Trump for four years. We've had a conservative court for four years. It hasn't happened. It's probably not going to happen. <clears throat> like the round you add to that, like the, the like, recent he's stuff. So, he's been yeah. so occupied with other things. I mean, he's been slammed with so right. much stuff. And, and, no, and, and that's a bad excuse, right? I mean, it's I mean, not. It's, yeah, it's a really bad one. It's a bad excuse, but I mean, if you think about it, like I mean, he's, he's got enough time to rage on Twitter. Trying so. his best, he's probably trying his best to do it, but he's got to deal with national security. He's got to deal with terrorism. He's got to deal with immigration. He's got to deal with all this different stuff. Um, Killing babies, I can like you I, I, know, I, go to the back burner. No, for but I'm saying, no, but he, I'm you know, that's one of his main things is like protect the family. So, you know, if I was him, I'd be. 
going after this. I mean, look, you have the Supreme Court, you have nine judges, five to four in favor of the conservative movement, right? And you, we can do that if we get it there. You know what I mean? We have to get it there first. We have we, it. We yeah. have it there. And it's yeah. not, and they're not, yeah. uh, they're not supporting I, I, I think it. With Alex. Yeah. Okay. Nick, and, and for all our viewers in chat, um, and this is the, let's say, and you guys can, um, you know, ask questions to Nick as well. We are watching chat. The overarching question that I have and that I've had for a while, we've expressed our deepest heartfelt admiration and, and uh, praise for Donald J. Trump on this podcast and uh, following the uh, the letter of Archbishop Vigano, which I don't know if you got a chance to read. We, we uh, He's gone. He has just been cut off by the Vatican assassins, right? We mentioned Vigano. Nick had to go. Um, now he's hopefully back. we'll bring him back. Welcome back. Vatican assassins didn't get to you this time. Nick, I don't know if you had a chance to read Archbishop Vigano's letter where he uh, had pretty open praise for Trump. Um, now, we've expressed it. The difficulty and the question I'll, I'll put to you, uh, what, what is the level of, let's say, support Kind of like, yeah. What what what's the level of support that a, that a reasonable Catholic who sees that you know our system is, in some ways, you know, necessarily corrupt? Well, not in some ways, in a lot of ways is, and we're not going to win a lot of these battles. Like, how vocal should we be in our support of, let's say, like Donald Trump or other politicians or the courts or whatever else? Um, like, should we just be stepping into that political fray very forcefully, or should we? you know, try and um, not be so vocal supporting this party or supporting that party? So, so I've got two thoughts in response to that question, which is a good one and a really poignant one for a lot of Catholics. And I won't pretend that my answer is all encompassing, but my humble thoughts are twofold. The first pertains directly to Donald Trump. The second pertains more generally to your question about the Catholic participation in the political sphere. As far as Donald Trump is concerned, I'll wear my colors on my sleeve and say, I don't really know a whole lot about the man. It's been four years. I haven't read much. I haven't been to much. I'm a pretty out of the loop as far as most of that is concerned. But I will say that as, men, as much with other political considerations in the United States, a big part of how Catholics should think about their own voter, their own supportive uh, politician, is how he compares to his opposition in some sense, right? So using the example of Donald Trump, you may dislike the fact that the man's been divorced multiple times and is involved in all kinds of other immoral activity of the kind. But that pertain directly to his office as a representative of the United States of America as our president. Allowed. More Democrat assassins. Not, right? Sorry, you're breaking Do up I, a little bit. Divorced at times, they're not necessarily. But <laughs> his policies are capable of enacting. But if we had a, if we had a Democrat. I'll have to mute you, Nick. Uh, Holy smokes. Mute. Listen, if someone comes up and goes, uh, I'm going to end abortion first year of my term. And all the rest is nonsense. <laughs> Sorry, Nick. I had to turn you off. We apologize, Nick. We, we, we apologize, uh, Nick. The, the Trump can assassins. You that? <laughs> well, he was Nick. Are you uh, try and turn off your video and then um, see if that'll uh, change the audio quality for you? Yeah, there we go. Okay. How's this? All right, much better. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Um, so just to finish that thought, I suppose. Not better. Not better. Try and leave the call and come Not back better. again. Yeah, try and leave the call. Bummer. 
He'll be right back. <laughs> <laughs> He'll be right back. Uh, yeah, no, it's it's a real it's a real difficult question. I think Vigano, um, you know, Vigano came out in total support of Trump, and I was very supportive of the measure. I think I think we should be. I think Bishop should be more willing to enter into the fray and enter into, um, trying to really, you know. I understand if you're going to support any politician, you're going to end up, you know, it's not a blind, um, not just a blind support. Obviously, there's going to be maybe bad things they do or difficult things, you know, once they're in office, but you have to make a decision, right? And I think bishops need to help guide that decision for their flock and for for Catholics and saying, here's what this guy stands for. Here's what he stands against. And these are the things he stands for that are in line with Catholic teaching. And so you should be inclined towards this direction. I mean, it's now. Yeah, I mean, you can have genuine disagreements or whatever else, but um, yeah, it, Nick, please. If he's there. I'm not right? Not good. Not good. Not good. Dang. Come on, Larkins, where are you at? It's us degenerates. It's us degenerates. Guys in chat, we are taking questions. Um, yeah, how vocal should we be in support of, let's say, Trump or um, any politician in general? You know, Helen, do you remember there was uh, an Italian politician that would always like put the rosary out? Did you see that guy? I don't think so. Okay. Well, wherever he would went, he, he would go. He would. Um, he was kind of more of like a national, like Italian character um, type guy. And then he would, at the end of his stuff, he said, I pray the rosary every day. And he would show his rosary. And um, people were just, like, really attacking him because he's like, you're just using religion as, you know, you're propping up politician stuff. And even Pope Francis came out and was like, he's using this for his political gain. And I was like, come on, man. Are you going to really assault a guy who's telling people to pray mm -hmm. the rosary as a politician? I mean, it's all about, it's just, gaining you know political value i mean it's gaining it's popularity it's what it is look it's a popular Alex. yeah it's a popularity contest i mean that's a, that's the system we've set up right is a popularity contest would you if you had the option would you be as popular as donald j trump i wouldn't want to man i mean that's that's tough yeah i mean, yeah, I mean look my dream doesn't include that my dream of moving to montana growing on my beard like drinking whiskey all day <laughs> wrestling bears Everyone knows this is my my one dream in life. That doesn't really fit with that type of popularity. Uh, in fact, I mean the the Trump pop. I mean, why you would want to be lambasted every day and just totally demeaned and called an idiot and all sorts of stuff? I mean, that's that's the land of a politician. You have to be in that type of space, and it's just not a not a fun one to be in. I I, I say the same thing for fame. I think fame is just a lot overrated. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. We'll bring, we're going to be right back. This is going to be the quickest break in broadcasting history. Do not go in. Welcome back. Quickest break in podcasting history. So uh, we got a little bit into liberalism, a little bit into capitalism and the whole system and abortion. Um, are we going to have class in the fall? I want to get back to that. Do you guys think that we're going to have in-person classes? Well, I'll let you know right now. I'm definitely going to be eating bananas in the fall because I need to eat more bananas. <laughs> <laughs> Potassium right. is our okay. Well, if the calf's open, they have plenty of bananas. That's great. Alex, I'll take the challenge. I, I'm of the opinion that this this is a, a rather a, a rather poor opinion that Franciscan will most likely do what the majority does. 
And so it's what it did as far as the closers were concerned. We, yeah. we started closing school right around the middle of the line, if you will. We weren't the first. We certainly weren't the last. Uh, I think we'll probably do the same. Graduation will be held. And I'm uh, probably graduation will not be held, but classes will be held. Okay. I mean, imagine the scenario. And guys in chat, imagine the scenario, right? We got people who come from all across the country, fly in from Florida, from New York, from California, fly into little old Steubenville with its older people, heroin addicts, and just poverty. And, uh, and they all fly in from across the country, and you have these older professors and older friars who are on campus, and you have a full Egan Hall bustling. People are bumping into each other. Full classrooms, right? And our classrooms are like basically like high school classrooms. And so everyone's jammed up on top of each other. Just when you put it in those terms, does it even seem feasible that we'd have a full capacity in-person semester? I mean, yeah, I'll say it seems totally feasible from my perspective. Whether or not the university okay. will share my perspective, I'm not sure. Um, that same exact concern, Alex, could be had for the flu every single season. Um, and I know that there's a discussion about the relative seriousness as well as uh, contagion rates of COVID-19 versus the flu and whatnot. But my point stands that the the basic argument that it's possible that COVID will come to campus in greater numbers than maybe it currently has. I'm in Steubenville at the moment, and our numbers are pretty darn low. I um, Thank God. <laughs> I, I don't really think that reasonably there's a good argument for it. But I will acknowledge that I don't think reason is the guiding force behind most of these closures, business shutdowns, and school shutdowns, anyhow. So, yeah, it's saving face. I mean, you don't want to be the one place where you have a corona outbreak and someone dies, and you could have just not had class, or you could have just <clears throat> not. That's what it seems to be. Is these you got to think in, in terms of like the mind of a president of a university. You know, they're they're going to get more blamed if they're pretty cavalier and they have a. Um, and they have school and they have in-person classes and you know they're saying all that stuff and then two or three professors die because of coronavirus and an outbreak, the president's going to get... I mean, that's... Do you want to be the president that caused the deaths of a few of your professors? You know? Like, you're never going to get I past that, that legacy. You're going to be the, the dummy who, you know, before the vaccine was out, if there's going to be a vaccine, decided a whole class. Alex, I totally agree with you. And, and I think that you could have authored the book on the board meeting that Harvard had to decide to close their university because I'm sure that's exactly what's going through their minds, right? And there's no way in hell that anyone at the top of an institution as prestigious in the average American eye as Harvard would be willing to risk their own do, like uh, their own career on that. Not a chance. No. Harvard the Law. Yeah, you just wait a year, mind. right? Like, and they can they can do it. They can just be like, did you? So I yeah, was reading no, through their official document, and they, you know, they had all these different like, okay, here's what we're doing, here's what we're doing. You get down to the tuition thing, and then it just says tuition. Uh, tuition will remain the same as our, you know, previous estimate or something like that. And it's just so That's funny because all of these universities are not reducing at all. I saw, I saw <laughs> a meme. Afford to, dude. They've lost, they've lost too much money already. Oh, dude, I saw. Frankly, I think. Let me see if I, can I think it's a miracle Franciscan's able to do what it's able to do. This whole. Uh, what, what do they call it? Step in faith or something like that? Free tuition for incoming students whatnot? That's insane. Absolutely okay. insane. Conspiracy theory, guys. All right, conspiracy theory. Step in faith was to get a huge online student presence. And then when stuff gets back, you have high enrollment and people will come. 
but they know they're going to do online already. They knew they were going to do online even back in 7th base. Tell me I'm wrong. Tell me I'm wrong. I mean, it seems like, you know, it seems like those presidents of all those prestigious universities who, who gives a crap about, it? I mean, they're, they're all, you know, just they're gluttons, you know, they become as large as a hippopotamus, you know, when they want. So like, look, I'm just saying <clears throat> the president of those universities, I think that they should do a lot better job of really trying to keep their schools open. Like don't close, keep them open. You're the, if you want to look, you're an Ivy league school. Everybody wants to go there. Yale, Harvard, all those different Franciscan. other schools. Franciscan should you be Ivy there. league. It should be. Look, it should be Ivy league. We send out. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here first guys. Franciscan should be Ivy league, right? Totally down with it that. It, Nick, look, Franciscan should be Ivy league. Nick, you look, you could so easily get into Harvard law. I could see you so easily. Like, you literally, the way you talk, the way you talk, and how quick thinking you are, and in the middle of it, doing lawyer, it, don't even backwards. know it, dude. You I mean you could go in there and you would just <laughs> savage. You'd be so savage. You just make all those guys Dylan, look like. I appreciate cake. the compliment you're giving me. My, my face is as red as my hat and shirt that I'm wearing, and, and I, I take it graciously as much as I can. But there's Nick, no you, way you I'm not more, in, bro. You need more confidence in yourself. You're low on confidence here. Well, so my point is, I, I have very little respect for Harvard Law or for their admission <laughs> process or for people with Harvard-educated degrees. Um, and I, I say that both as someone who is at least a, a somewhat informed on the history of Harvard, the history of uh, modern higher education, that sort of thing, and also as someone who's walked Harvard's campus and talked with Harvard students. Um, and frankly, with the understanding that this probably sounds right far more impressed with the intellectual caliber of students that I've met at Franciscan than I am at uh, an Ivy League at Harvard. Truth be told. Ooh, Harvard, you're getting called out, little loser. Nick, try and flip your, your orientation again. I've been on a handbasket for a long time. Flip your orientation. Flip your, uh, your phone orientation again, see if it'll okay. get you back. Our intellectual capacities yeah. uh, are at, at their highest test with this. Yeah. Uh, our, our intellectual capacity, the capacity of Franciscan, is so perfect. It's super califragilistic, expialidocious. That's how great ours That's is. That's what we learned, right man. Right there, I'm telling you, bro. I'm That's telling you. That's no, how smart we are. Well, one of the things originally when I was going to come to Fran Franciscan was like, okay, what's the academic level or caliber or whatever? And I think if you just look at the professors that we have, they're all kind of let's. They don't really fit like the let's like the university mill type. You know, you have an academic agenda and then you just kind of output it at your university and you kind of know what to expect or whatever. Like there, uh, you know, at least in the philosophy department, there's a lot of like diversity of thought, you know, all within a Catholic framework. But the, oh the gosh, teaching yeah. styles, the teaching styles that are very different. A lot of things are very, um, you know, some things are fairly unsystematic. Other people are, you know, more systematic, whatever else. There's definitely. Oh, Alex, are you suggesting that we have an increment of. Academic freedom. <laughs> there's a ton, and and there's something really to be said about that. You know, that academic freedom of thought, where you can literally have any crazy thought and then bring it into class and it be considered, and not just um, because that really shows you that you're not getting indoctrinated. And this is the big thing that people have been talking about uh, recently. You know, conservative commentators are are talking about more and more frequently. 
the fact that we've lost the education battle in the United States. The conservative movement has lost the education battle to liberals. And especially now that we're seeing, you know, all these crazies with the the BLM protests and all this type of stuff, most of them are people our age and up who have went to these extremely liberal universities and been indoctrinated in identity politics, racial politics stuff. And they're not interested in debate or free thought or anything like that. It's completely what they've been taught. And you can't view the world in another way. And it's incomprehensible to them that anyone would disagree with them because they haven't been challenged intellectually. They've only been taught what they've been taught and then well, hang on, repeated. Alex. It's not, it's not, it's not incomprehensible that somebody would agree to them. It's that the people who disagree with them are subhuman and deserve to be eliminated, not tolerated. There you go. That's what it is. No, that's what our culture is today is that if you disagree with them, you're autumn. It's like, you're completely invalid. Like it, it's the dumbest thing. Have we in America, have we lost the ability to have common sense arguing with each other? Why yes, do yeah, we, why least, do we all as far as, At least as far as modern education is concerned, modern families are concerned, modern political discourse is concerned. Um, modern communities are concerned. Of course we have. Um, that's patently obvious, Kellen. Um, and I know that you're getting at that point. I think your question was more rhetorical than not. Um, uh, the solution is to get married, have children, teach them Latin, and build beautiful churches in the word of one Amen to quite that, <laughs> Amen to that. author. I'll do that. Uh, you know, I mean, it's just to me, it's we've gotten in this culture. Of, we've gotten so far to the point where we completely just disregard another human being. Like it's it's like they don't even exist. I mean, it's sad to see that. We don't want that to happen. But Nick, you're so right when. You know, we're getting into this culture and we already have been it been in it, but it just seems like we're immersing more into and more into this culture of I'm right, you're wrong, and there's no other way around it. I mean, it just doesn't that's not the America. That's not the America that we should be living in. You know, what I mean, that's not look, we have a two-party system. We should get together in Congress, work together to try to build a better America. But you have so many people in this country that are, are so just fixed and so angry and so, you know, f- fueled by hatred, people in Congress even, that you, we can't do anything about it. You just can't do it. Well, well so honestly, Kelly, what to do. The, the source of a lot of this, and this actually pertains in a lot of ways very, very, very seriously with the Catholic Church, Vatican II, and the Church in America, generally speaking. A lot of it, I am firmly convinced, has to do with the loss of the transcendent, the loss of the eternal, the loss of the spiritual from the average American life. If you truly understand the the human person to be composed of spirit and body, to be oriented towards eternal beatitude with God, and to be created in a cosmological universe that uh, abides by the God of Christianity, then you have to understand and sympathize at least with those who have grown up with absolutely no inkling that any of those things are true. And yet the very nature of their being calls out and strives for those realities. And I think that tension is literally enough to tear people apart into the madness that we see today. I mean, it's, it's the separation of what ought to be a composite whole, matter and spirit in the human person. And to divorce them as seriously, as irreparably, and as violently as modern, atheistic, secular, materialist, liberal, postmodern, whatever you want to call it, culture does. It's hard to expect anything else from a split being, if you will, 
than the madness that we see around us in these days. It, it's people searching for, the, ironically, with identity, identity politics anyhow, people searching for a lost human identity. They're living as split beings, and there's no way to reconcile it. Okay, so I okay, so I understand your argument when you say, okay, we have to be sympathetic toward these people that haven't had any of this teaching. But a friend of mine the other day, I don't know if you guys know Marita Ostrich. She's nope. just, you know, Marita. She, you know, had a Facebook post that said, you know, porn kills love. And it was, she was wearing the t-shirt that said that. She started getting some serious backlash. And I was just thinking to myself, people are saying on here, you know, porn doesn't kill love. I think, you know, watching porn is such a beautiful thing for me. It makes me really understand my sexuality. I'm like, guys, <laughs> this is like, guys, this is like completely distorting love. I can, okay. So people say, oh, you know, Kellen, like, you're wrong. And, and but what I'm saying is, is that those people, because as Catholics, we know what's right. We know the truth. We know that that's wrong. We, we should be sympathetic for those people, but they should take on themselves to learn about this stuff. That's the no, problem. I, I, that's the I, problem I that I'm having with most people. And when but, I'm looking but, at the arguments, I'm like, these people should take it on to learn about it. I mean, well, so so, Kellen, let me pose this question to you, and I, I don't mean this offensively at all, but I mean it quite earnestly, just as a way of regular reflection and examination that I would pose to myself. Why haven't you taken on, if you will, for yourself, the learning of all kinds of other things that you haven't yet learned? Nothing in particular, but all kinds of important things. Are you calling us um, degenerates, like, Nicholas Larkins? Like, 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 what do you know about the writings of Montaigne, for instance? Okay. And you could argue that the writings <laughs> you of Montaigne are... You don't know Montaigne, Montaigne yeah, but, uh, Bro, like, I heck, haven't dude? studied all this stuff, okay? So, but no, hey, but I'm, I'm I get gonna, that. I know, but, I completely understand what you're saying. No, so and I know you I do know that. that but I should. You know, what I, I mean is this. If you knew Montaigne... Sympathy, you, you can't confuse sympathy with acquiescence, right? Sympathy is not, oh, he doesn't know any better, so it's fine. No, 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 no. Sympathy is merely knowing and understanding that it's wrong to hate or judge someone for something they can't be held accountable for. That's not to say you can't be forceful with them. In fact, you ought to be. You ought to be strong with them. And part of the problem with modern Catholicism and Christianity is, frankly, that we're too damn wishy-washy about all of this. And so I agree with you as far as that's concerned. I didn't mean that sympathy ought to be a greater ecumenism, uh, what do you call it? Ecumenism, if you will. That's not what I'm trying to get at. Only that if you these people who perhaps don't know how to search for the truth or don't know to search for the truth or frankly just aren't intellectually minded if you will which is the beauty of catholicism is that you don't need to be an intellectual you don't even need to be literate to be a good catholic to be a saint i mean think of the thousands of saints right that existed in such simple states of life they went to mass they prayed the liturgy of the hours in the fields they raised good families they did vespers in the evening. They adored when they could. They communed when they could. They confessed when they could. And they got to heaven. The beauty of it. But we've lost a culture of Catholicism, a culture of Christianity, such that these people who depend upon the properly ordered cosmos, which includes a Catholic and Christian culture to guide them, are left starving for that. And it's really a, a really inhuman type of existence. And for that, we should be sympathetic. It's not to say that we shouldn't call them on the higher things. I entirely agree with you, only that there are deeper problems of which they themselves are victims as much as we are, if you will, and that the solution is perhaps not to try and dialogue exclusively with people who are incapable of dialogue, but to work ourselves towards a rebuilding of Christian and Catholic culture in our own lives, our own families, our own homes, communities, and that sort of thing, such that we can restore the proper social order necessary for dialogue to become a possibility. 
But what it do looks- we do with people? But what do we do with people that have no, no intention of even like being open to the other side or no people that, you know, on Facebook, on Facebook today, you see so much hatred. You see so much just people hating one another, hating their opinions. How do we deal with people? Should we feel sad? Should we feel sadness for those people that have no, no intention of changing? We should feel the same sort of sadness, perhaps, that any Christian feels when he knows that a, a, a fellow human being is damned. We're sad for that. But we, at the same time, and this is paradoxical, rejoice in God's justice, or even rejoice in the fact that God ordered the world such that such a thing exists. It's, it's a very strange reality. But shortly put, Kellen, I'll answer your question, and you'll understand when I give you the answer why people don't typically like to ask me that question. What do we do with such people? I quote Avicenna, describing those who would deny the principle of non-contradiction. He who would deny the principle of non-contradiction should be beaten and burned until he admits that to be beaten and not be beaten and to be burned and not to be burned are not the same thing. Heard it here first. We are advocating violence. (laughs) I don't strictly mean feed and burn people. I do very much mean... Don't pull punches with reality, which is what I'm trying to get at there. Okay, well, I want to put it to you, people who I think didn't pull punches with reality. Now, I'm going to throw the liberal enlightenment movement a bone with this. They assumed that grace doesn't work, that um, ultimately, no matter your best efforts, humanity is still going to be humanity as a fact. And, um, the way to, the way to deal with that, and and it's really, it's, you know, it's pretty brilliant. It's got us to where we've gotten now. It has its flaws, but you really do have to admit that they're saying, okay, well, if we conceive a society as a conglomerate of individuals, we put Mm -hmm. a state there to regulate, we're going to use people's natural self-interest to try and produce the best outcome. Right, we're going to regulate that through the state and through a social contract with the sovereign, and we're going to institute certain things to make sure the sovereign doesn't uh, become tyrannical. So that's yeah, the checks and balances. Three fundamental errors there. Okay, well, let me provide the full, their full go for, argument go for. for it. You you make a sovereign who you know the, the people are supposed to be the ones who make sure you know they elect their officials. You put democracy and then you put self interest together, at least in the political system. And um, you assume that people are going to act in their self-interest. You make laws that will, um, you know, things that are damaging to society as a whole that people think are damaging, you can make laws against. And then you just let the system play in the hopes that self-interest and then uh, state power will give you the best outcome. And I mean, in, in some degree, to some degree, at least in a political system, where you assume that grace is not operative. It's one of the best to produce material success and uh, social stability. And I use stability in a negative sense. I use stability in the, the same sense that Huxley uses it, in which all of society, <laughs> all of society and Brave New World is the whole goal of the whole society is stability. And they achieve stability by eliminating everything that, you know, is desire, eliminating bad desire or emotion. That's like the goal. So if you put self-interest and then you put, okay, people are basically bad. You take that premise and then you say self-interest is what they're going to do. You let the state regulate it 
and then you try and orient that self-interest to the social and individual good. So in that system, how do you introduce to people the notion that that system is, let's say, is fundamentally flawed because it's not open to divine intervention and, let's say, grace leading people towards something beyond self-interest? How do you introduce that? How do you introduce that the that there could be something more than the best regulation we found to evil, basically, to the, the problem of humanity? Simplest, most practical answer I can give you, Alex, is have a child. There is nothing more fundamentally self-disinterested than having a child. And there's the liberal argument that you need greater uh, production and so you carry on your genes and have more children for economic output is complete BS. Absolute nonsense and totally divorced from the reality of childbearing and the lives of so many people. There are other answers, sure, but really fundamentally, really simply one great example. Do something as selfless as having a child, getting married even, right? Giving yourself up for another in a fundamental way. I mean, I agree, but like family, you know, can be family in general. And obviously, that's obviously in your self-interest in a lot of ways to even, you know, beyond any type of, like, I understand the degradation of the family today, but like, I mean, the Romans would have a kid and then give it to a babysitter, a babysitter, I forget what the, a pedagogue or something like that, right? Who would raise the kid and, you know, eventually they would be successful enough to go off on their own and the parent would, you know, you want to have children, like it's, it's a natural thing and natural family. And you can obviously, you can take family, marriage, whatever, and then shift it in self-interest in different ways. Like, I understand it's an, an important thing well, that's being so, under attack, but it doesn't seem to introduce to do. me... I know you do. It doesn't seem to introduce to me the there's something beyond the regulation of self-interest by the state. Well, so I don't see well, that I, I Agreed that there are other examples, but maybe two things about that. First, at least as far as your example of the Romans is concerned, I would discredit that precisely because the Romans at least prior to the incarnation. And there are weird people because they existed prior and post-incarnation, but the incarnation changed everything. Um, secondly, that there, there are perversions and distortions of this, right? It's not like you get married and have a kid and suddenly you're a Catholic, um, that you can fail to see these things. But I merely gave it as one possible example and a really damn powerful example of selfless human activity and one that is for almost everyone who exists um, as a matter of fact, everyone who exists as far as you're a son and daughter, and most people as a physical mother and father, um, is a really integral part of your life. There are, of course, Is it other truly examples, selfless? Okay, can you, because you can, Yeah, it can be so self-interested. That, it can definitely be, I, I think anything can, I mean, you could accuse it of being, I think it's one of those things where you sacrifice the present for the future, and that's just a natural thing, right? You're sacrificing but, your your present tranquility for, um. Yeah, for having children and the the joys or the benefits of that mm-hmm. later on, and you can Only, have them in just a natural sense, but still with self interest, statehood, whatever else, no needing of grace. It, it's a it's a very weird Chesterton like paradox, right? That it's self interested interest or like a Kantian disinterested interest, if you will, purposiveness without purpose, whatever other kind of way you want to put it. Just in the same way that the Christian paradox is, we're all supposed to want heaven and be attitude with God and our own sanctification and our own holiness, but you can't get it unless you lay down your life. You can't find your life unless you give it up. And that makes no sense. It's weird. It's a paradox, but it's how it is. And it's the same way with the interest in the family, if you will. 
and and I would I would push back against your idea that it's interest or like a disinterest in the temporal, but interest in the in the future, if you will. That you would have to take that up with someone, and this is a really poignant, tragic type of example. But someone who maybe lost a child um, in childbirth, lost a child when they're eight, ten, fifteen years old, something like that, or, or really any parent who loses a child, and you ask them, "Was it worth it?" Are you sad that your child didn't mature to the point where he could economically help you or where it could basically pay off, right? Or a mother who carries a child for nine months in her womb, dies in stillbirth or something like that, and you ask her, do you feel ripped off? And she might feel hurt and wounded and the mother or father might be as grievous as can be, but the proper order of things, nine months in her womb, dies in stillbirth or something like that, and you ask her, do you feel ripped off? And she might feel hurt and wounded, and the mother or father might be as grievous as can be. But the proper order of things, and there are, of course, perversions, is such that you would not have rather given up the good thing to avoid the bad of losing it. And, and that, that's where liberalism falls to pieces, because liberalism would have to say that in your own self-interest, the economic calculus doesn't work, and that you ought, in fact, to be indignant that you, you're basically your investment, because that's what they think of a child as, that your investment didn't return, which is sickening. But the Catholic view is something totally different, which is that God gives and God takes away. We know not when the time or the hour for that sort of thing, and that we ought always be grateful for these things when they do come. And the order of the world and the natural response of most people in this situation is, I think, fundamentally Catholic, right? No matter how liberal you proclaim to be, mothers grieve when their children die, and not for economic reasons. It's, it's the rare, accepted, perverse, perverted, and far warped mind who really would cry when their child dies for economic reasons. I just don't think it's the case. It works on paper and nowhere else. Guys in chat, we are, guys who are watching, people are watching live, we are taking chat. Um, I do, I just want to continue to push back because I, I think, I, I think, great. Um, great. because I, I don't see how it's any bigger than, I, I, I understand the, I think the economic interest part of it is a bit of a straw man because even among the pagans, there's the virtue of family and family values and whatever else um, that you, I think generally, even in a society as you know, corrupt with the family as ours, people still value a husband and a wife who are faithful to each other. They still see that as a good. People still see having children and raising them properly as a good, and you can see that as a, as a natural. Like if we if we take natural law and you, we believe it, then obviously then it seems like we're not making any grace proposition. We're only making natural law proposition. Now, if you say I see, I see, if you if you say marriage, you know, necessarily is going to be corrupted by uh, human weakness, and therefore you need grace to live it out completely and perfectly. Then okay, then we we start going, but like. Even the pagans have the natural virtue, you know, see it at least as being a something you want to attain. This kind of like living an entire life of, you know, free love and hookups and stuff like that. People tend to view it as like, okay, well, that's when you're young or whatever. And eventually you're going to figure out that there's a, a just a human natural value of being a parent, being a husband, being faithful and whatever else. And people still think, you know, divorce is a terrible thing to go through. It doesn't matter who you are or whatever. It's it's a terrible thing to go for uh, go through unless you're the wife of Jeff Bezos who is now the richest woman in the world i think she's worth something like 500 billion dollars or something anyways um in which case you're very happy to get divorced uh and of, of course there's a lot of things um uh, but but 
I don't see how it's any bigger than just a natural law proposition. I I so, understand like it just seems like another conservative talking point of we care about family values, you don't. And um, I I love I don't, your critical mind. Okay, now how do you? This is the big question: is how do you get people interested in? How do you get people interested in in thinking? Grace can be operative. The sacraments can can actually work, and it can actually make a real effect on the world and on my world, and change my life. How can you, how can you, uh, get people to be open to that possibility? And then further, how does the church do that? And how do you, how does the church distinguish that from just preaching a kind of just bootstraps natural law? Try and figure it out on your own with self interest. Yeah. Yeah. Well. Big questions, excellent questions. And maybe to begin, we can start off with a small anecdote of some kind that answers your question directly, but not comprehensively as much as I know a mind like yours wants. There's a guy nearby me who lives where a new cathedral was built, and he lives, he's a faithful Catholic, been married for a long, long time, never got divorced or anything like that, raised a bunch of kids. The guy next to him, not Catholic, and really resented the fact that they built a darn cathedral on half of his lawn and that kind of thing. He was kind of like, uh, had a lot of animosity towards the church. But the Catholic was telling me one day that after years and years of living there, right, that the guy came up to him one day and just asked, how do you do it? He was like, what do you, what do you mean, how do we do it? And he's like, how do you do it? How are you happy? How do you have kids? How have you not divorced? How, how I don't understand. And it was the example of someone just living an ordinary, faithful Catholic life, if you will, which broke through the wall of this guy's, maybe liberalism, you could put broadly, but um, his inability to see the Catholic worldview that living grace living the example of grace is the best example of it because i mean honestly as catholics i agree alex we don't pay enough attention to grace at least as much as we should because it's real and it's necessary and i'll I'll take a line out of dr jones when he says that there's a lot of reason for hope in the modern world because everything's Mm -hmm. going to hell and the reason why that's a good thing is because the things that are going to hell are the things that we've tried to do without god right it's like the tower of babel is crumbling and we as Catholics should rejoice because it's finally the proof that this doesn't work. Yeah. You need yeah. grace. And so the example, is, I mean, it's not like you really have to convince people in some sense. What you need to convince them is that the answer is grace, but you don't need to convince them things are wrong. Everyone agrees something is wrong. And so I, in well, my I mind, contend that, like, but we can come back to it. Continue. Well, all right. That, 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 there well, are. I think everyone just, everyone, ex- what the what the sovereign's trying to do and what the whole society's trying to do this whole stability concept that Huxley talks about is convince yeah. you that this is the best state of affairs. I mean, that's what you're trying, like in Revelation, when everyone receives the mark of the beast, they're happy to do right, so but, but because that Eugene, allows you know them that- to, because as, as John says in Revelation, if you don't have the mark of the beast, you can't trade and you can't operate yeah, in the world yeah. unless you assent to this system of evil and assent to your happiness within it. You won't be given the freedoms necessary to operate as a human being, and and part of the system is to deny grace and deny yes, you know yes. these bigger things. So like I think but, people don't like people aren't interested in in even seeing that like it's a problem that can be solved. They just say it's just humanity. We're just bad. Uh, agreed, and and that's that's part of what I'm saying. So you think about my anecdote, right? Like if that if my neighbor had tried to bring this up to the guy 15 years earlier, he would have responded the same way that you're predicting he would respond, Alex. It's not something that you can learn in like a five steps to apologizing the people. Like it's just, it's not that simple. Great <laughs> grace, grace pertains to the fabric of reality. It's not a, it's not a read this book or say these things. Um, 
But I think you make a really good point, at least as far as Huxley's concepts of stability is concerned. But I want to emphasize that the paradox, or maybe not even paradox, perhaps, but the final end, which is ironic, of liberalism is that it destroys itself. In its attempt to become everything, it consumes itself and becomes nothing. It's like Lewis's definition of hell in The Great Divorce, where the guy rises out of the crack, and he doesn't realize until he's been walking around in the mountains that hell was nothing more than a blade of grass worth crack in the dirt. But it seemed big to him while he was down there because he shrunk to go in it. Or if you think of um, the famous painting of Goya's, of Saturn eating his son. And if you're not familiar with this photo, look it up. It's a haunting photo of Saturn eating one of his sons. This is a Greek myth because he heard that one of his sons uh, would overpower him. And so in, in a fit of fear for this, he eats his son so that they won't do it. And the picture has got Saturn there holding one son decapitated and the other son he's like biting into. And one eye is looking out like horrified at what he's doing towards the viewer the other eye looking down ravenously towards his son. It's an awesome depiction of tyrannic insanity and madness, but it's, it's disturbing in a lot of ways. But that's liberalism. It's that it, it, it's abortificant in its very nature in that its own progeny serve to be the fodder for its destruction. It's very, very weird, very, very strange. But even liberalism's progress is only progress towards its own destruction. Every victory of liberalism is yet only another nail in its coffin. It's, it's, it's a startling concept, but Huxley's stability is actually impossible, which is, I think this is the point he's trying to prove in Brave New World. It's certainly the point that Orwell tries to prove in 1984, and it's definitely the point that Lewis proves in That Hideous Strength. All three books were published within like a few years of each other. Um, so it's a fantastic example, but I think that you don't, in some sense... You, you won't be able to convince someone necessarily the moment you walk into them because the time will probably not be right. But all that you can do and probably what we forget in modern Catholicism is live the best Catholic life you possibly can because that's the only life which is really fakened, which really has any possibility of becoming something other than what it is, which is transformed by grace. And a reality which denies grace, liberalism will necessarily wither and die. And so you live as a grace-filled Catholic while the world lives as a graceless, liberal-type world. And that's all that you can do is that hope that eventually those who are withering will look up and see those who are flowering and realize that something is really freaking wrong with their own worldview. But beyond that, I don't think that you can come up with a simple answer. The answer is get up, do your work well, pray, live according to the gospels, try and be the best you can be, live a life of virtue, become the man or woman you are meant to be, do the will of God, aim for heaven in all you do, and let that be that. Ask God to sanctify it, go to bed and get up and do it again the next day. And, you know, that's so perfectly put, Nick. I mean, I was just I was just thinking while you were saying that, I mean, us Catholics, we have we have an obligation and, you know, to evangelize the world. And, you know, I ask myself sometimes, how do I be? How do I be a witness to other people to be a good Catholic and to try to make this world a better place? You just got to do it. You you have to be that witness, and we, we're given all those tools, aka graces, that help us right execute that job. And you know, when it comes to graces, it's such a powerful, such a powerful thing—the concept of a grace, like something that is given to us. It, you know, it could be you know in re, you know in uh, return of our of like hard work, or you know even just something as easy as going to mass. Um, but it, it's true that when you were talking about how 
you know, the Catholic view and then like the liberal view, like the best that we can do is be a witness. Like that's what we have to do. And that's something that we have to do in this world every single day. And no, I agree. You know? And it's something that we probably make too much of, especially in places at Franciscan on the showy side of it, right? We're real True. big into the outward signs of evangelization, but maybe not so big in the internal disposition, the going inside, closing your door and praying to your father in secret, the not letting your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Um, but we're not great about that, it seems. And that, in my mind, is somewhat problematic. Um, I think that is in many ways more important and the necessary precursor to any form of outward evangelization. Good as those are, right? Like I wouldn't advocate for the ending of missions, but but we can't become so caught up on the outward appearances that we forget about the inward disposition because grace lies there. We're going to take a quick break and and we're going to be right back more. Sorry. You can't see me though. You're doing great, Nick. You're we're we're back in. We're back in. Welcome back. Quickest break in broadcast history. Okay. I'm going to take you to task again. I'm, I'm, let's say very hesitant. It seems like in the, so you made a statement about liberalism that it's self-defeating, right? And people will realize that it's self-defeating. That, I think, is more, let's say, according to Orwell's, like we were talking about 1984 and the books that came around this kind of dystopian universes, Orwell sees the totalitarian state as the big enemy that people should be really afraid of, right? Huxley, on the other hand, thinks the whole trajectory and his future's like, you know, like 500 years in the future or whatever, the whole trajectory is... For Huxley, you're basically trying to create this universe in which all your desires and everything are just easily fulfilled. There's no emotions. There's everything is stable. Um, there's no uh, there's no family anymore. Um, everything is everyone's made in a laboratory. Um, they're raised in a certain way to desire certain things through Pavlon- Pav- neo Pavlovian uh, conditioning. Uh, yep, th- if yep. their emotions get out of control, then they uh, take soma, which is a um, basically he describes it as all the effects of alcohol and Christianity without any of the defects. Brilliant description. And um, and so like the whole tendency is just to create an easier, less uh, prone to the instability society. And the the thing that makes Huxley, I think, a lot more um, a lot more poignant than Orwell is. Huxley seems a lot more possible and real. And it does seem like what, what their trajectory is. I think what liberalism, liberalism, I think is successful in its aims. And this is something that maybe in its aims is to create a society of material prosperity, material wealth, and uh, social stability under the sovereign. And um, I think until, let's say, another society conquers you, it's very successful in doing that. And I, I think I have also a biblical basis for it. If you're trying to find material prosperity and trying to find social stability or whatever, you read Revelation, you read all these other, you know, apocalyptic works where they're where they're trying to set into to, you know, how do you understand the nations? When you receive the mark of the beast and you're able to trade and whatever else, you're given a certain material stability, but it's evil because you're trading that material stability, that material success. You're trading that for your soul and for you know real ends of humanity. So I think right. what, what you're pointing to here, I agree with you that obviously it's perverting human nature, but it's perverting it in such a way that makes you closed off to the divine and closed off to the necessity of thinking about salvation, thinking about final ends, 
and then says, let's narrow your vision just a bit so that everything really is out of order, but just trust us and we'll make you materially stable. So I think it's successful in what it's trying to aim for. So, um, but in what it's trying to aim for, but it's ultimately damaging to the human person, which I think is what you're pointing to in your, your anecdote that you pointed to. People will realize it's harmful to the human person as a whole. Like if your desires are so messed up to begin with because of, you know, how you're formed, how would you like, how would you, uh, you know, as the conspiracy theorist talk about like, wake somebody up, you know, to the, the big conspiracy, which is actually, you know, all this stuff really isn't oriented towards what true human ends are. How do you wake someone up in that type of sense to like the necessity um, of grace, the necessity of living a yeah. a life tending towards heaven, heaven rather than earthly happiness and stability? I would, I would dispute a little bit, although I see your point and I think you'll probably see mine if we were to push it a little bit. I, d- I would dispute your point that liberalism is successful in its aims because it may be the briefest example that you can give of this, right, is that liberalism by definition is intolerant of anything which is intolerant of liberalism, right? Say that one more time. Liberalism is by definition intolerant of anything intolerant of liberalism. Next sentence. Catholicism is intolerant of liberalism. Not as it's conceived of today. No, no, it is. Oh, wait, you mean Catholicism or liberalism? Not as Catholicism is conceived of today or preached or taught. Okay, but, but here's my point. The, I mean, I, in, I'm in, talking... in its essence, yes. Like how it really is, yes. But like we've, yes, we've made I mean. a version of Catholicism completely admissible to liberalism to the point yeah. where we'll shut down all of our stuff and we have bishops supporting Black Lives Matter. Right. Like that's, and so, that's the issue is but, we've but, received the mark of the beast in order to continue to operate. No, those who have chosen to receive the mark of the beast have exchanged their mark of baptism, if you will, for it. And, and the, you can no longer say that they're among, if you will, the chosen in the way that they once were. Um, I'm not talking total apostasy, by, by the way. We're not, we're not saying it's apostasy. <laughs> I'm just saying it's just been so... It's just, it's been I understand. So, yeah, it's anyways, go ahead, apostasy. Nick. I'm sorry, I'm interrupting. No, no, no. I, I, I'm with you, and we fundamentally agree here. Um, but what, would, what fun would this discussion be if we only said that we respected each other's thought? Um, (laughs) that you're you're precisely right that we've made a version of catholicism which is so admissible to modern liberalism that it by and large leaves it alone right because we've given them all the major victories um and this is precisely the point that alex and i we had a private discussion once about this book that i read catholicism and modernity which essentially chronicles the acquiescence of the catholic church to postmodern liberalism from basically the beginning of the 1900s to the end of the 1900s, at least in the United States. Um, and I really had to agree with all the main points made by the author and which are capitulated really succinctly by you there, that Catholicism in many ways and for many people's experience of Catholicism has reformed itself to be admissible to modern liberalism precisely because, and I return to my point I made earlier, that such Catholics have forgotten the transcendent, the spiritual, and the eternal and therefore they themselves have become bound out in what replaces that whole, or, or what fills that whole replaces that loss, which is the state. Politics becomes, politics becomes the sanctuary of the state, where once the altar and the, uh, the cathedral was the sanctuary of the Catholic as he entered into uh, a, tr- a transcendental spiritual experience where he communed with the eternal. When that's gone, what do you do? You go into politics, right? 
you, be, you become a priest politician of some kind. You, you pontificate upon all kinds of various political, social justice concerns because there's no longer any real spiritual concerns. There's no longer any moral obligation to follow the Ten Commandments or the Beatitudes. So you supplant that with a desire for social justice. Like it's no coincidence that people are so concerned about dying children in Africa, but we've only been concerned about that since maybe the 1960s or 70s, right? I go, go look up 1940s advertisements for uh, aid in Haiti, aid in Uganda. You can't find it; they don't exist. No one cared. Not to say no one cared about the poor. It's that people cared about the poor that were down the street from them because they were real human beings that went in their parish of some kind. They followed out the corporal works of mercy, the spiritual works of mercy. They didn't offshore it in some kind of weird social justice paradigm of some kind. Let it's me add weird, to that, let's say, yeah. acquiescence to the liberalism, and you just take a political, let, let's say, okay, well, if there is no transcendent and there is no real purpose in trying to tell people to live a grace-filled life, if we're going to assert that you know, a, a general unconscious agreement of clerics to not really challenge to live a grace-filled life, then you either go yeah. into politics. I think the other main one is individual fulfillment and comfort as a a, a subset of social stability. Yeah, and this is why this is why it's so good beer. Not well, no, not no, no. I'm com I'm completely not that. What I'm saying is, you're you like the um not unsettling. It's just like. It, you know like a protestant community where they're all talking about like feeling and you know being one with the lord and feeling the comfort and the you know the speaking of the spirit and all that stuff like it's it's kind of it's good stuff you know but you're you're let's say placing it within a you're being a christian because it makes you feel good and it makes you comforted knowing that you're doing the right thing it's a kind oh, of I see. The, it's the, a the christian, the christian yeah, yeah. approach well yes yes so what it's a it's a disassociation of the body and the soul with an overemphasis of emotions and that type of stuff with no real demands on living a grace-filled life so you do the two things you either become political and social and justice type stuff and then you couple that with you're really a catholic not to you know live a grace-filled life in your own life and then socially and then everywhere else but you're you're really doing it because it brings you a spiritual comfort which yeah, is, these, I think these are the same kind of people who just like say, what God is for me sort of thing. Exactly. So it becomes a kind of, it's a, uh, it's a hobby. It's a, it's a personal, like some people exercise, some people surf. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Some people have a book club and then some people believe some like, well, they don't really believe the truths that are there. They're really just, you know, participating in community and community building yeah. is what the church really does under the banner of Jesus and whatever else, but it doesn't make the demands there at all because that would be asking too right. much of people. Because uh, if it, you it, ask too much of people, then you're you're assuming grace is necessary. You're assuming the sacraments actually do something more than they signify. Um, it's Christianity stripped of the spiritual transcendent and eternal. Absolutely. Yeah, and then and then you can have both. Emotivism. Yeah, political stuff and then individual comfort whatever i mean that seems to be let's say that that uh circumnavigates the whole what catholicism really is in modern america today is either your own personal comfort or on the other side kind of social justice political stuff um 
Well, I mean, that's something that like, I've kind of looked into is I've questioned, you know, why does, I mean, in times of like great crisis, I guess, why does the Catholic church, why do we care about what other people, why, why do we care about other people's feelings? You know what I mean? Like, why, why do we, why do we adhere? Why do we lower ourselves down to the feelings of the world? You know what I mean? Get and Get so like, why, I mean, if we have, look, if we have these societies that we're going through a lot of trauma, we're going through a lot of hell right now, we're going through a lot of bad stuff. We should be the ones that take charge in this. We should be the ones that go forward and set the example, right? I mean, we did extensive talk on the Amazon Synod. Like we did probably a good 10 hours of podcast. Degenerates, man. We thought, we thought that there was going to come good out of that. And really there wasn't except for that guy throwing the idols in the river. That was epic. That was epic. <laughs> that, was epic. that was epic. But look, my point is, is like, not everything is going to turn out the way we want it. But I feel like in Catholic America today, well, no, I mean, well, I guess, I mean, we do I guess, Catholic America, I guess, but like us Catholics yeah, who live in America, correct. Who live in America. We're hoping for a Catholic. America, I, I, we're hoping we're technically, you know, a Protestant nation. But I mean, I, I, mean, I don't know what we are at this point. I mean, we don't. I don't really know. What Helen. We are. But but what I'm saying is is that we need to take charge more than I think we are. Because I think I feel like we're kind of crumbling right now, to be honest. I mean, I, I just I don't get it. I, I don't you know. Not as many people listen to the Kellen and Alex show. Like, yeah, what the be- heck? By the way, guys, we are taking chat. Please drop us something in chat. If you guys listen to this, you're you're getting the Say truth hi. at you. You're just getting it like fired, rapid fire. You can't, rapid you can't fire. dodge the bullets, man. Nicholas so, Larkin. So Nicholas Larkins. Look, Kellen. one thing, Nick, though, you've you've uh your your speed is now comprehensible. Whereas like when you were a freshman, man, <laughs> it was so I remember we talked about this, dude. You would off the chain. It, it was anyways, I interrupted. Go ahead. Go ahead, Nick. It's nerves. It's nerves. Nerves. But, uh, That's what does it. Dude, nerves make me stutter. I I think you're the first person where nerves make you talk faster. <laughs> <sighs> Anyways, if I talk faster, it gets over sooner. What was your question towards me? Let me, uh, let me read something Kellen said, but let me read something to you here. And I want you to guess when this was written. See if you can. It's a short little passage here, but I'm going to jump around a bit. Traditional Catholicism is variously patronized, derided, condemned, or ignored by self-consciously modern Christians on the equally various grounds that traditional Catholicism is outdated narrow, inhuman, or incredible. A firmly transcendental religion, a deeply held belief in the eternal God, is a constant threat to humanistic Catholicism so skillfully fashioned in the past 20 years. Can you tell me what those past 20 years were? And I could guess that you're reading out of the Church of Modernism book, in which case it would have been the 60s? That's what I'm thinking. I was thinking like well, now, and then, then again, it could literally be John Henry Newman, so I have no idea. <laughs> or it could be Chesterton. So, anyways, go ahead. Tell tell us where what what when this was. That was that comment was published in 1979. So that's a reference to the church in the 60s and 70s. Okay. This is this has been going on for nigh upon 70 years, if you will. And longer, if you believe that it didn't take those 20 years ex- ex- exclusively. But I thought it was good to point out because, Kellen, your question is your question is excellent and it's really poignant. 
description of the cry of the faithful, which is, how the hell did we get here? Why is it like this? Why can't we seek refuge in the church? Why is the church part of the problem? That's what I'm asking. Um, and, and at least in the, opinion, in the opinion of this one author, which I'm inclined to believe is correct after having studied his work, he believes that it's one of the greatest human mysteries of modern times, the amazingly swift process by which the Roman Catholic Church, apparently one of the most solid, self-competent, and enduring institutions in the history of the world, was plunged into an identity crisis of cosmic proportions. And I think he's dead on. Perhaps it's because exactly we've what? never encountered a beast this compelling before. Yeah, that's what I that's what I was saying. It's like I think we're in a time right now where it's like worse that we've ever seen or one of the worst that we've ever seen. I mean, think about in how some, bad in some worst respects, in which in sense? Know. Worst in which sense, right? Because this is the sense that I'm talking about the Huxley dystopian is the reason why the Huxley thing is the worst is because it's so good at what it does. Right? The Orwell one, everyone's like, well, it'd be bad to be completely brainwashed and stuff. The Huxley one, um, you know, there's everyone's perfectly fulfilled and happy. Well, so have you guys read the screw tape letters? Yes. No, I need to though. Some of uh, Kellen, jump on it. You'll love it. I know, I know, I know. But there's an excellent letter in which the 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 devil, the main devil screw tape is talking to Wormwood and he's saying, like, it's been useful to us at various points in time to make men either believe excessively in the spiritual and thus make them sinners as magicians, or to make them excessively material, and thus make them sinners as atheists and secularists. We don't really care how they get to hell so long as they get to hell. And I think your point is well made, Alex, that this is a particularly effective and vitriolic form of evil, and it's kind of like it's been refined over the past thousands of years. What's the most effective evil? And it's a pretty damn effective evil. Liberalism, postmodernism, and whatnot, it's good at what it does. It's really good at what it does. That's true. Um, yeah, that's what I was thinking was we're in a time now where, in, in essence, our enemy is very, very good. It's very, very good at what it does. And like that's the problem is that we're not in a time right now where, uh, you know, what we're going up against sucks. <laughs> I mean, like it's proven itself over and over that it is good at what it does, the evil that it does, the confusion that it puts out. It's proven itself over and over again that this it is working. Yeah. So well, I mean, why we take, are up take the books. The most intelligent, created being who's bent on our destruction. That's that's a tough opponent. That, that might be that might be one of the problems. I don't, something like that, you know. But I mean, take the take the Psalms and take the book, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah when they're in Babylon. You have the psalmist saying, you know, by the streams of Babylon, there we sat and wept, remembering Zion. Right. There were a great number of Jews who just completely forgot about Jerusalem, about monotheism, about the whole thing, and just enjoyed Babylon for all its luxury and, and all that yeah, it provided. Because yeah. you assented to Babylon as being the sovereign, and you got to do so many great things. And I think the same thing today, You know what, what it required was Ezra going back and reading through the Hebrew scriptures and being like, holy crap, this is what we were about. This is what we existed to do. And eventually they get to go back and rebuild the temple. But it's only a small contingent of Jews who even decide to do that. People have talked about the remnant in the Catholic Church and like people who are true Catholics versus this huge group or whatever. Like it's just, you know, we have not faced something so so good in the, the material sense that just gets enough wrong that it gets almost everything else, but then uh it denies the supernatural and it denies eternal salvation as being the ultimate end. And it convinces people just to live for the moment, whatever else, and it perverts the whole thing. 
right? That's what makes it such a what makes it such a you know damnable enemy is that it gets so much right but gets the final end wrong. Yeah, it's like the process of it is getting it's getting it's getting it all, but like you, yes. you know that you know that it's doomed to fail, but. It's doomed to fail in what sense? This is the the Tower of Babel worked until it didn't, right? And so you can just ride the train as long as it goes, right? Like, I mean, people built this huge tower. It must have been really fun to build the, the, the Tower of Babel and hang out. Maybe there were generations of people who just existed through that. Like, did they if ever you're think- interested? Go ahead. Quick side note. You guys should look up um, the Tower of Babel by Peter Bruegel, the Elder. The famous painting, it's housed in the KMZ in Vienna, if you guys saw it in Austria. It's an awesome depiction of what the Tower of Babel must have or may have been like before its destruction. And it illustrates beautifully Alex's point. You look at it and you're like, yeah, maybe I'd live there and write it out too. <laughs> it, it, it's worth looking up. It's but worth looking it eventually up. failed. It eventually fell. So like, correct, correct. So to what end, like, how, where does this end? How does this end? When does it end? What does it look like? How Judgment does it day. This? So why? And then the additional question: Why fight the battle? Why not uh, just yeah. try and work within it? I mean, it seems like the V two whole movement was: um, Look, let's ride out this storm, and hopefully, we'll preserve some somewhat of Catholic identity, and um, we'll just see what what happens. We'll be <laughs> affirming of the modern world and. We'll just uh, we'll build we'll build economic prosperity, peace. You know, we're gonna build, and and you got to remember, this is coming off of World War II and all these atrocities. Mm-hmm. They're thinking these are the worst things that happen to humanity: genocide. Worst thing that happens to humanity is war. The worst things that happen to humanity is poverty and starvation. And whereas the worst thing that happens to humanity is damnation, right? And so right. And you just you like- just get it a little like all these things are extremely important, obviously, but like. Eternal salvation is the ultimate end of the church. And if you miss that, like it's not for saving souls. That if you get everything like the church does everything, 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 and then you just miss like, oh, well, we don't really emphasize eternal salvation, then you're no different than everything else. Well, it's like everything has become invalid that they've done. Like if you're not working towards eternal salvation, what's the point of anything? I mean, but totally what, right. do you, does the church want to damn people to hell? No, it doesn't. It wants to save souls. It's the complete opposite. The problem is like, especially in the United States, we have such a lack of judgment, lack of good judgment, that we actually, with we, we fall into the system and try to work through it, but we don't look at the overall picture of what the actual end is to this problem. So it's like, we don't have, and this is why it comes down to my argument all the time, the education system. What's, what's the name of it? It's Common Core has corrupted, indoctrinated people. See, it, it's a process, right? It, it has corrupted and indoctrinated people, twisting our history, not teaching truth. And now it's a process. Those people are being raised up, and now that's what, they're, that's what they know. The problem is, like, in America, we have such bad judgment that we don't know how to— we don't know what even know what right or wrong is. We just fall into the system, th- this process that we're being raised, that we learn. We don't, we don't know what even we're doing. We don't understand the processes here of right and wrong. We just fall into the system. 
and we don't know how to get our way out of it because we have such a political sphere all around us that is just swarming us with information. So how do, Nick, how do Americans, how do we create better judgment? How do we give people a better sense of judgment in this country so that they can make their own decisions instead of just falling into this society where we have political systems just swarming us? You know what I mean? How, how do we, how do we get better judgment so that we actually know what we're doing instead of just being indoctrinated? It's so easy. Homeschool your kids and read good books. Homeschooling's I, tough, brother. Homeschooling is yeah, tough as hell. I don't care. The, the alternative, the alternative is exactly what Kellen just described. Yeah, no, you're, totally, mean, you're maybe, totally right. Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, you're right. Maybe you find a maybe there's a good situation which you can send your kid to school for some reason. We're all graduates of Franciscans. So we all went to school at least for some portion of our lives. But my point, my point is made right. Don't trust the education system as far as you can throw them. Homeschool your kids. Read good books. They're our connection to the world that came before us. There's my answer. I, everything I mean, else, will, everything else will flow from that. We did a debate on homeschooling. It's becoming more and more a. Uh, I, I've even heard conservative commentators and other people like. Well, I listen to Rush Limbaugh on occasion, and uh, I really like Mark his Levin, program. Baby, what's that? Mark yeah. Levin, baby. Oh yeah, him as well. Um, and well, they're talking really about because... educational. Well, they're even talking about homeschooling as being like even just for teaching American values at this point because it's been so lost. At least the it founding ideas. It's, it's been so it's been so corrupted by society that we're not even teaching. I mean, can you imagine? Look, take for example the people tearing down Grant statue. Right, there's this one black guy like standing in front of it saying, look, guys, you don't even know what the hell you're doing. Like, people don't know this, but people have said that, pres- you know, Grant did was one of the presidents that did the most for black people. I mean, he did. And so, like, when people are doing these things, like they're tearing down these statues and stuff, they don't even know what they're doing. They're just fueled by hatred. And that's the problem that I have is that America is fueled by hatred when it comes to this kind of stuff, which, which that you can't do anything. Like you can't do anything about that. I mean, what what can I do? I can't go out. I mean, I can put my life on the line and stand in front of a statue, but like, how is that going to stop those people? How's that going to? Kellen, I can't do it. The beautiful thing, uh, maybe I should say, it's kind of like um, a, a macabre beauty, is that the liberals will get rid of themselves because they'll contracept and abort themselves out of existence. All you have to do is have a lot of children, homeschool them, read good books, and in 30 years, reconstruct the statue. Uh, simple process be able right to, there. Simple I process mean, plan. Well, and then another, let's say, I not hopeful in that direction, Nick. I understand, obviously, you have lots of kids and stuff, but if I you're know, if you're going to, you know, if the power and the hegemony and the, you know, influence and money and everything is going to persist in those who hold these type of you know uh that you know keep the system up then it's going to always benefit itself even if catholics are having tons of kids or whatever they're just going to be continually dispossessed if they're actually living out a radicality because they're not gonna you're living out the radicality you're not going to be a a power player in the system 
You're going to be a uh, power player. You're going to be a power player in a different sense. You're going to be a power player in the sense of like, not not power player. How, how would I put this? Influential or whatever. Influential. You're not going to rise to, unless you play the, the kind of evil tactics of the game and you get really, really high up, you know, you're not going to get the grand sweeping, let's say, let's say influence. But, um, no, I, I do, I do, I do totally agree. I'm just saying, um, yeah, but, but, but Alex, at the same time, it's not necessary, right? The, 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 it's the not necessary. Fallacy, I totally agree. I totally agree. The, with that. the fallacy yes. of modern liberalism is that the sovereign is someone, right? Or that the state has powers independent of what we get it. Both of those are false. The sovereign is just the, the, um, the agglomeration of everyone who consents to said sovereignty. That, that, that's why if you've ever seen the traditional picture on Hobbes Leviathan, it's a, it's a monarch stretching his hands out over the land, but the monarch himself is composed of thousands of little people. A great picture of the sovereign. And that, what's the other thing I said? Um, oh, that the state has power independent of what we give it. It doesn't. The state is only a function of the people who assent to it. So right. you, yeah, you can refuse point. to assent. Yeah. You can refuse to be a part of the sovereign. And in so doing, you refuse to be a, a power player or influencer as far as the sovereign is concerned. You become one far more powerful because you excuse yourself from the legitimacy of an erroneous state. Um, th- think of the example of like Jerome J. June or something like that. Um, what was the guy? Michelin, Acton and whatnot. Uh, or even um, who's uh, en- Enrique Shaw, right? Great Catholic laymen who are involved in, uh, I don't know, business or the political sphere in limited ways and whatnot, but who had incredibly enormous impacts in the lives of hundreds of people in and around them. But they didn't play games at all. I mean, at all, not even in the remotest way. Or you can think of a family example of like the parents of, uh, who are they, Louis and Zelie Martin, who were the parents of Teresa of the Zoo and whatnot. I mean, a simple watchmaker and a darn seamstress produced a doctor of the church and changed the world in ways we, have, we we can hardly yet imagine, right? So you're right. You refuse to be a power player in the political, technocratic, autocratic sense of the word, but you become something far more powerful because your power is not, or it's the legitimacy of your power, and I hate to use that word, let's say the legitimacy of the good that you can accomplish does not derive its worth from the, uh, the stamp of the state, if you will. Wow. It becomes part of a living reality. And that's exactly what Christ did. And you think yeah, about yeah, the yeah, temptations yeah. of the devil yeah. is perfect. perfect basically exactly. the temptations is, okay, you can get everything you've ever wanted. You just have to assent to me, the ultimate sovereign, right? You just, all you have to do is bow down and, and worship me and you can get universe. I mean, what could be better than changing, you know, stones into bread. It's the idea that you can give man all the material prosperity he, he needs you also can throw yourself down from the temple, which is basically saying you give man a purpose to live because he he recognizes your authority and your mystery and you you bind his conscience. So you, he doesn't seek anything beyond what you can offer. And, and then the kind of universal mortality. Yes, the promise of immortality, these type of things. And then uh, ultimately all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory of them put together. So every you, you get universal dominion. Uh, eternal material prosperity and no pangs of conscience. The, you get everything you could possibly want and all that humanity could naturally want. All you have to do is assent to Satan. And that was the offer that Christ got and he rejected. 
right? And he rejected it on the basis of you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. So the ultimate ascent to the sovereign is the ultimate ascent to the creator and ultimately to his Christ who redeems, you know, all of creation. And that puts you at war with the world. And this, this is like something maybe we've, we've, you know, the church has missed. We're supposed to be at war with the world. Like if we're really taking it seriously, we're ultimately at war with all the structures that set up, you know, a system right. that's not um, oriented towards salvation. I think, I mean, there's a lot of good what you said there, Alex, especially your conclusion. Um, it's, it's worth emphasizing, however, that the temptation of Christ by Satan there is fantastically worldly. And I would say that it's actually not everything you could desire because human beings can desire things that are otherworldly. Lewis makes that point really well. And it's interesting to note that all of t- Satan's temptations are worldly. He can't offer spiritual fulfillment. He can't offer eternal life. He can't offer. He can offer a right? pseudo spiritualism, though. Correct. 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 He, he can't. Can. He can't well, offer it, rest an and peace in God. He cannot offer it, it that. Makes me, which it makes people me do think desire. of that. Um, that part in Brave New World, since we've been talking about that, that excellent part where um, what's it? Lenina tries to come in and uh, with with the savage and savage has been interested in her and she's kind of interested in him but totally different he wants mm. love and she just wants sex of some kind when she realizes that she he's attracted to her she tries to come in and, and just make love with him and but he and she doesn't understand why he's pushing her away and he can't make her understand that he doesn't want false love with her yep. so he says the murkiest den the most opportune place he quotes Shakespeare. the strongest suggestion or worse or genius can shall never melt mine honor into lust and it's a fantastic, at least as far as Brave New World is concerned, kind of analogous uh, Christ-typical rejection of Satan in the form of the savage right there. It's, it's an awesome line. It's, um, yeah, it's all based on deception and falsity, ultimately, because it can't deliver what the human heart actually wants and desires. It gives you as much of the ephemeral, it's not even ephemeral, it's like, it's persistent. It's just if you really analyzed it and you had an occasion to really, you know, that that's why in um I think it's in yeah, in the screw tape letters, like the whole object of screw tape, or he said hell he describes hell as like an eternal noise. Like there's always just noise. There's never peace and there's never music. It's just noise. And like that's one of the things you have to do when you convince people that they're actually happy, not trying to live, you know, life for God and for eternity, you just create this eternal noise, which never gives you a moment's pause to realize you're really actually unhappy. Yeah. Kellen, want to hop in? By the way, Twitch chat, we are taking any questions you have in this last seven minutes on the Kellen Alex show. This has been a killer podcast. This has been incredible. I mean, I think just one thing that I was looking at was, um, you know, obviously we're going to be tempted in this life and we're going to go through a lot of tough stuff. But the thing is, is like, I think the problem with, you know, just the world in general is that people don't believe anymore because that there has been such corruption in this world. There's been such bad things that have happened. You know, God didn't say that bad things weren't going to happen, but you know, but what I'm saying is that people have lost faith in themselves to actually like get through this, these difficult times. I mean, they've, they've seen 
that all these bad things that are happening, they just think it's swarming them. And granted, like people have, everybody has a different situation, right? And so there, you know, different people go through difficult things. Some are more difficult than others. And, but the thing is, is like, I feel like our society today, we've gotten to a point where we don't, we don't believe that there's a way back. It's like, what's that scrupulous, right? They're scrupulous. They don't believe that they can be saved or whatever, just because of all yeah, these yeah. evil things. So like, why? So my question to you, Nick, is like, why would, why in itself would society, which is supposed to be a good thing, create this kind of, create this kind of mindset and idea into society where these people, we just, we can't recover. We've done too many evil things. There's so many bad things happening around us. There's no hope for us. Well, so society itself it is a good thing only insofar as all created things are good and that society is good because man was made to be a social creature. But society in the sense of the world we live in today is not a good precisely because it isn't a good society. So that the mere existence of a society is only good insofar as it exists, not because of its particular type of existence. The, where we've gotten, Kellen, is precisely because and I think that it's particularly bad, if you will, just to use a really simple word, in a way that it couldn't have been before the Incarnation, precisely because it's 2,000 years after the Incarnation, that we've rejected such a heritage, such a tradition that was handed down to us from Christ and the Church that he established, that the rejection of such a society, such as reigned in Christendom for you know 1,500 years in Europe, and which inspired the totality of Western civilization, the rejection of that heritage is, is catastrophic in ways that we can barely describe, but which we are all witnessing. I don't think it's so much society as it is the rejection of society, right? So we're the prodigal son in some sense, but we're sitting in the, in the pigsty right now. And it would be wrong for you as the prodigal son to say, why is family so awful? I'm sitting here in a pigsty because the prodigal son was the one who abandoned his family and found himself there. We in society and, and are analogously the same. We find ourselves in the metaphorical pigsty, but not because of something that society has done by its nature, but because we've left the society of our betters, the saints, the Western civilization, and the heroes, and the, the men and women who built up the, the kingdom of Christ on earth. And the abandoning of that society is what leaves us in such a destitute state today. Agreed. Yeah. I think, you know, definitely. I mean, it's like we, I mean, it's kind of like what I was going back to. It's just the lack of judgment. I think, I mean, it's just like, we have like, God has given us these tools to get through things, but you know, it's like really up to us if we want to make that choice to get through it, you know, the graces that we've talked about and, you know, definitely like society in itself, like we can, we can corrupt society. Um, but like the question of, is society even a good thing? Like the concept of society, what is a society? Well, I think a society is like, a you know, a buildup of people. Right. But, you know, it's just, it, it makes me think how good can society get? You know what I mean? Always imperfect this side of heaven. Yeah. Always imperfect. And, uh, unfortunately, what is, sorry, sorry. Fortunately, what is perfect? The Kellen and Alex show. Um, <laughs> thank you guys so much for watching. We're we're rolling up on eight o'clock very rapidly. Um, 
This has been an excellent podcast. Thank you so much, Nick, for joining us. It's always a pleasure to have the three degenerates all together. The pleasure talk- is mine, Alex. You talking about society, much, talking about liberalism. We appreciate it, buddy. And thank you for joining us on the Kelton and Alex show. If you want to join us live, we go live every Thursday from 6 to 8 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. That is 9 to 11 East Coast Tringus Time. We go live at twitch.tv slash Hingus Tringus. Twitch.tv slash H-I-N-G-U-S-T-R-I-N-G-U-S. We also release the podcast Friday morning on all the podcast platforms. Thanks so much for listening, guys. Peace out.